0: From the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast, this is U.S. Farm Report.
1: U.S. Farm Report is on the road from Las Vegas this week for Farm Journal's Milk Business Conference. And as dairy demand has been dynamic this year, we'll cover that and more over the next 60 minutes. As a new COVID-19 variant creates concerns, the volatility and commodity prices may be here to stay.
2: The Dow was a point, points higher this morning finished 450 points lower this afternoon, so the volatility in these markets is something that's going to stay with us.
1: Supply chain concerns continues and farmers are paying for it. A dairy who knew in order to keep dairying, they had to change.
3: The story only sells the cheese the first time, the quality sells it the second, third and fourth time.
1: How the magic of cheese helped four brothers come back to their family farm. And a special goodbye to Mike Hoffman. Now for the news. It's been a big year for dairy exports, and USDA forecasters expect that to continue into next year. The agency releasing its latest outlook for U.S. ag trade. It's forecasting a record ag trade for next year, despite trimming the export outlook a bit from over the summer. It predicts ag exports will total $175.5 billion for 2022. That's down $2 billion from the August outlook. But it would still be a record, and beef exports, those lead to increase. They've revised those up $800 million thanks to higher prices. Well, dairy exports specifically are raised $200 million to $7.7 billion. That's on higher volumes and rising unit values. And it's all thanks to strong global import demand and tightening competitor supplies. But getting those exports out of the country, well, that's proving to be challenging, especially at West Coast ports where empty containers are piling up. The Wall Street Journal reporting hundreds of thousands of boxes are filling marine terminals and truck yards across Southern California. The issue is tying up crucial cargo handling space and adding to the gridlock that has gripped American distribution networks. This as shippers scramble to find scarce sea containers for goods, even as storage sites are overflowing with boxes. But there are reports that the cost to move a container fell by more than one quarter last month, the biggest decline in two years. Experts say it could be a signal that the huge demand for exports from Asia is easing, but shipping executives tell the Wall Street Journal it could still be months before the backlog of ships at West Coast ports is actually cleared. Well, the cash-fed cattle market has been on a tear lately with cattle trading at the $140 per hundred weight level last week. The market right now at its highest level since at least March of 2019. February live cattle on Monday that reached a contract high for a third day in a row above $141. Last week's top price was $15 per hundred weight higher than the first week in October and $30 higher than this time last year. Drovers is reporting that there's been a market shift in leverage with the advantage to cattle feeders over the past three weeks. It reports that packers are being aggressive in all regions, which is a big change from the last two years.
4: Overall, demand's been phenomenal and the, the economy's hot. People can afford and, and choose to have high quality food, especially pork and beef and chicken. And I tell you, looking at the grocery store, it's not, even chicken's not the affordable item anymore. It's all expensive. And so people are going to store, the economy is at all time highs. There's been some things going on with Brazil and some other countries, but as long as we can keep our herd healthy. Again, we've had problems. Canada had a major drought. They had to sell off a lot of their herd. North Dakota, Montana, there's a lot of cattle up in those areas. And so those were liquidated uh, at, a, at a young lightweight. And I think you're seeing that keep start to track and coming back in the numbers here.
1: Well, economists say cropland values have surged by 15% in the Midwest and Plains. That's the highest gain since 2013. Now, the largest increases, those were in Iowa, where cropland values were up 28%. That was followed by Minnesota up 26% and South Dakota up 23%. Well, the White House has released an agency by agency breakdown of coronavirus vaccination rates. You'll remember the president's executive order earlier this year required federal employees to be fully vaccinated by November 22nd. It reports 92% of all federal employees have received at least one dose of the vaccine, and it says 86.1% of Department of Agriculture employees have gotten at least one dose. It represents the lowest number out of the 24 agencies surveyed. It's estimated about 9.5% of USDA workers require a waiver. Another 4.4% did not respond to the mandate. There are reports the White House is telling federal agencies to hold off on firing workers for not complying with that mandate. Well, when we come back, dryness all across the West has many in agriculture worried. We'll get Mike Kaufman's final U.S. Farm Report forecast. That bittersweet moment is next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. Through extensive research, decades of expertise, and stronger industry relationships, it's easy to see why Stein has yield. Plus, so much more. Discover the Yield Plus Advantage at SteinSeed.com.
1: Well, the weather segment this week It's bittersweet. As we mentioned a couple months ago, Mike Kaufman is retiring. We'll have a closer look at his time with us later. But Mike, you have been a familiar face to our viewers since 2007. I wish that I was there to give you the proper goodbye. We are really going to miss you, Mike.
5: Well, good morning to you, Tyne. You know, it might be better you're not here in person. Uh, We might be too emotional to speak at this point. I have thoroughly loved talking to the agricultural community and farmers over the last uh, decade and a half because you folks know the weather uh, better than anybody else because it affects your livelihood. And so I just, uh, growing up in a farming community, that has made me appreciate that very, very much. So here goes my, uh, my last weathercast on uh, USFR. You can see some uh, wet areas still remain in the southern Mississippi Valley. That has uh, been kind of shrinking a little bit and moving eastward, as you've noticed during this season. Still very wet from the far western plains into most of the southwest, and a lot of the northern Rockies still wet or dry, I should say, uh, wet areas in uh, throughout Washington state. And then there's areas of dryness with a few wet areas along the East Coast. So all of those things are things we have to watch, but not critically at this time of the year. So not until we get the next spring will we start to really worry about that. You can see some of that dryness, though, starting to show up northeast Texas and surrounding areas, western Great Lakes, but the real dry stuff is still in the western portions of the country. Here's the jet stream. As we head through time, we're going to see it get a little more active. There's a storm system moving uh, from west to east by Wednesday, another one coming in. And then you can see another one on Friday as we head through the Great Lakes. So each one of these brings some active weather with it. Uh, overall, it's going to be turning colder through the northern tier of states. But as long as it stays more zonal like this, most of the time, the real cold stuff, ends up staying to the north. So let's go day by day and you're honestly going to look at this Monday, Wednesday, Friday map and say each one looks similar and that's because each one of these storms out west ends up where the one in the east is two days later. So it's kind of a two day process. So there's a storm system over the Great Lakes with some snow uh, there, rain and thunderstorms through the southeast, also in the northwest. Same idea. The one in the west comes into the Great Lakes again with some snow. Rain to the south of that, scattered showers and storms. Now, obviously, on the Tuesdays and Thursdays, you're going to get some of this in the middle of the country. By Friday, then, same thing. There's the third storm system, Great Lakes, cold front through the southeast. Next storm a little farther south, though, in the northwest with uh, rain and mountain snow. December temperatures expected to be below normal for uh, most areas. North of the Ohio River through the northern plains, far southeast, much of the southwest above normal. We don't change it too much for January, in my opinion. In February, then, we uh, shift that cold a little farther north, but still through the northern tier of states Below normal, above normal, Gulf Coast, and much of the southwest. Precipitation over the next 90 days. You can see above normal, Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes. Below normal, southeast, much of the uh, west and southwest, and then above normal in the northwest. Tyne?
1: Thanks, Mike. And again, we'll have a look back at Mike over the years later on the show. But next, from the variant to inflation commodity prices, we're on a roller coaster ride this week. Dan Bossy, Tanner Emke, and Mike North join me to break it all down next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pivot BioProven 40 the only predictable form of nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven 40. Predictable, productive, weatherproof. Turn to a better nitrogen. Turn to Pivot Bio Proven 40.
1: Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend from Farm Journal's Milk Business Conference. Dan Bossi, as well as Tanner Imke and Mike North joining us for these markets. Dan, big week for commodity prices. I mean, you look at earlier in the week, commodity prices tanked. Then we saw a bit of a recovery. Is it inflation or is it, you know, and Jerome Powell actually admitting that inflation is here. Or is it factors like this new variant that really pressured prices earlier this week?
2: Well, we found the variant in the United States today. And so the Dow was 100 point, 500 points higher this morning finished 450 points lower this afternoon. So the volatility in these markets is something that's going to stay with us. You know, when I talk to my big hedge funds or the big money managers, if you will, they are all telling me it's a very, very good year for them. They've made lots of money, whether it be in futures, uh, cash markets, or even the stock market. And so they're very protective. I think that's adding to the volatility because these guys don't want to screw it up. And so they're getting smaller, they're getting out. And I think that's providing the extra volatility that we've seen in markets, at least for the, the post Thanksgiving period holiday.
1: Yeah, and we know milk markets, I mean, are used to volatility, right? That's just the norm when it comes to some of these milk markets. But with the news this week, did the market seem unfazed by it, or did it have an impact as well? Tanner.
6: Oh, I think there's uh, so much. Uh Uncertainty out there uh, that's causing all this volatility across all markets. This is not agriculture. It's it's uh, anything that's traded right now is trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. Uh, With interest rates with Omicron, uh, there's so much uncertainty right now that, you know, if you're if you're uh, buying any level of inputs, uh, if you're trying to control any level of cost, it's a it's a it's a problem. And uh, you know I think there's so much uncertainty right now. it's hard we need some more information I think uh, on Omicron before we can start releasing really what the impacts are going to be on inflation going forward.
1: At this point, Mike, I know we're waiting on more information, but does it feel like the, the market's overreacted?
7: Anytime big news like that comes out, we definitely move farther than we likely should immediately and then the market has to reevaluate. And then it can come back. We saw that in the trade this past week. And now the question will be, and to Dan and Tanner's points, as we learn more, is that first move justified and should there be more to follow?
1: But it sounds like no matter what, Dan, what you're saying is some of your fund clients are saying, listen, we're not going to do much as we kind of write out the rest of this calendar year. So is it something where you think January 1 hits and the market mood changes? Or really, what are your expectations based on those conversations that you're having?
2: You know, the calendar will be important because people want to have stuff in their portfolio. But that I'm saying, they're worried about inflation, so they want to show their investors that they're invested in hard assets, including agriculture, and so that will be there. And I do think as we get into the new year that you will find more buying than selling. But for the next couple of weeks, it could be really choppy and really volatile. And, you know, whether or not we're in a pandemic, moving into an epidemic, by that I'm saying as we get more variants and we really don't know what to do with them, this is all part of this learning process. But I'm afraid the, uh, the corona- let's call it the COVID, will be with us in some form or fashion for an extended period of time. It's just us getting comfortable with it, much like we did with the flu back in uh, 1917.
1: Well, will inflation be with us a long time? That is a question. But I know, Tanner, that when we last spoke in August, you said, listen, it's already impacting dairies. We're seeing really inflation that's causing, uh, you know, some of the expansion that we had seen slow when it comes to cow numbers. Do you think that that story continues to play out, or are we heading in the other direction?
6: Well, we're going to be in this period for quite some time. Um, I mean, even after once we get through the the holiday uh, period where all these consumers are buying things and we got all these logistical problems – I don't think our problems end there. We've still got so many people who've left the workforce, and that's going to be driving uh, wage inflation, and that's going to be driving price inflation for quite some time, and that's a systemic problem. That is not transitory. Uh, this is an economy that is trying to find its footing now, and I think uh, going forward, you know, the, the price environment, uh, you know, if you want to build a dairy or a new parlor, uh, that's going to be elevated for quite some time, whether you're talking about stainless steel prices or uh, lumber or cement, uh, anything like that, and of course labor. Um, those costs are going to be elevated for quite some time. And so I think uh, the impacts are going to be with us for at least through uh, most of 2022.
1: Mike, what are your expectations on inflation and the impact on feed costs as we move through the rest of this year and, and into 2022?
7: Well, I think the market's already been embracing that. You know, prior to Powell even coming out and saying, yeah, I think this might be here for a while. You had simple things like inflation indexes that were already trading at three percent. We didn't buy into the transitory argument, and I think as we talk about feed, it will have its, it, it'll show its head there as well.
1: All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report.
0: <laughs> U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Whipples Hybrids quite possibly the best hybrids you can buy. Well, as
1: John Phipps wrapped up harvest this year, it's an annual goodbye.
8: Earlier this year, some of you may remember my mourning the loss of an old arboreal friend, a huge mulberry tree that was victim to a sudden windburst during what we thought was a regular old thunderstorm. It turned out to foretell other goodbyes in store for us in 2021. For example, this remarkably trustworthy combine built in 2008. Now I'd never run a combine past 2000 hours, but these are different machines in a very different time. This one just turned over 3000. Now I'm not endorsing this brand, but I will say the 9000 series John Deere machines have been surprisingly durable with few lost time harvest breakdowns. Now to be sure, Aaron spent serious bucks every winter to have dealer mechanics go over the machine with a fine tooth comb, but it has been a trusty workhorse for our farm. And in case you're wondering, it was sold about two days after Aaron made the deal. The new-to-us machine that we're getting is coming off a one-year lease and, and should be here any time. Not that we've been looking down the lane every time we hear a truck, of course. Now when he first priced a trade and then regained consciousness, Aaron opted to include this beloved tractor in the deal. After being driven for 11 years, it only had 1,900 hours on it, so maybe we really could do without it. Thanks to machine repeat, he found out it was worth more than he imagined or even dreamed, so he was able to make a major combine upgrade without losing both his arm and leg. Regardless, I've spent most of those 1,900 hours in that seat, pulling a finisher, vertical tillage, and a grain cart. It was a good old tractor. And yes, in case you're wondering, it was resold immediately as well. We get attached to our tools. They multiply our puny power to change the world. And let's face it, they are kind of fun to operate. Well, when they're working. As I look around our farm now, I realize this is one of the only machines left that I purchased. This is another kind of goodbye as well. Like too many old friends, human and not so human, farewells are adding up this year.
1: Thanks John, Machinery Pete joins us for Tractor Tales next and later. How one dairy was able to bring back four sons without having to grow the size of their herd. The secret to the recipe later on U.S. Farm Report.
2: Join Andrew McCray for Farming the Countryside a farmer-focused podcast all about production agriculture. Brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven, the nitrogen-producing microbes that stay put, whether or not. Visit pivotbio.com.
4: Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're off to Illinois, and we're going to visit with a collector with a very unique Farmall seed demonstrator. This is a 1950 Farmall Seed Demonstrator, I uh, don't know how many they built. They built them in the first quarter of 1950. This is the 42nd one built. They were painted this scheme as an eye catcher for the dealers and then if the, the customer wanted to then they painted them red before they before they purchased them. They took them to, to farmers fields if they wanted to demonstrate a new tractor. and. People would see the white tractor and want to stop and and see what it was. It was actually a red one when we bought it. I believe it was in about 1994, and we we were always looking for tractors, even back then. And we'd seen this tractor and parked back in the shed with with a mower on it. Leaning against the tractor was three brand new bundles of fence T-posts. So we made him an offer, we'll buy the T-post and the tractor. He accepted the offer. We came back probably an hour later and he got out of the car. He said, I've changed my mind. And both of our hearts just sunk to the ground. He said, I don't want to sell the posts. So we gave him a little less for the tractor and came back the next day and put gas in it and I drove it home.
1: Well, dairy demand has been solid and consumers found comfort in things like butter and ice cream during the pandemic. But what else is driving that demand? That's next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition.
1: Welcome back. We're at Farm Journal's Milk Business Conference this week with dairy producers across the country. Well, consumers found comfort in things like butter and ice cream during the pandemic, and that record dairy consumption isn't just happening here at home, as we learned this week at the Milk Business Conference in Vegas. As the COVID-19 pandemic caused dairy demand at restaurants to shut off, consumers still purchased dairy, just in a different way.
3: There were some months where we were selling, you know, 30% more ice cream at grocery stores, you know, 20, 25% more butter. And that's where we saw uh, different segments in the industry pull some of the other segments forward.
1: USDA released data in October that showed U.S. dairy consumption hit a new record in 2020, up 6% compared to the previous year. That equated to about 3 pounds per person.
3: The milk was flat and cheese was flat, and cheese has been the big driver for a few years now. You know, cheese is really just kind of through the roof in terms of uh, demand, but we saw butter driving consumption.
1: But it's not just domestic demand seeing an increase through the pandemic. Exports
9: exploded, hitting a record pace the first nine months of this year. We're looking at record volume of total dairy as well as the record value of dairy products overall. Uh, So really kind of an optimistic picture right now, even as we've had plenty of challenges uh, in the global market this year.
1: From milk powder to cheese, the demand in Asia has been significant. Think about Domino's in Japan, or think about Pizza Hut in Asia Pacific, and what we saw with those businesses is actually the pandemic for the most part was a boon, particularly in those markets where they had strong carry out and delivery business. China has been on a buying spree, which has driven much of that exploding export demand. U.S. dairy exports to China were up 32% during the first half of the year on a milk equivalent basis. So what's driving that demand even through the pandemic? Well,
9: dairy's health benefits. And a lot of that has to do with the Chinese government telling consumers, hey, dairy is really nutritious. It's a great thing for your immunity. Uh, Go out, buy dairy products. And so, frankly, Chinese consumers did uh, as, as a result. And so we've seen a huge spike in uh, imports of everything from some of those milk powders I talked about that are in those dairy products, as well as into cheese as well.
1: But Laux says exporting those products has been no easy feat as the shipping issues, especially on the West Coast, are a major hurdle. And it's not just adding to the cost, but forcing exporters to get creative.
9: Customers overseas are trying to figure out, okay, do we trust the U.S. to get us this product on time? Are they willing to make those sales in the first place? And if they are, are they willing to pay that price that they were willing to do before? And at the same time, are exporters having to pay added costs just to make sure that their products get on a boat, whether it's, as we've seen, butter moving out of Duluth, Minnesota to Thailand or air freighting product. All of that really adds cost throughout the supply chain, which then impacts dairy farmers. As dairy demand in the new year tries to top this year's record
1: pace, one Missouri farmer just saw firsthand in Dubai how that demand could continue to grow.
5: But uh, cultures are really superseded by people's instincts. They want good quality food. They want it to be sustainably produced. They want to know that the people that are producing it are good, wholesome people. And that's, I think, where dairy farmers have a leg up, and U.S. dairy farmers in particular. And I think that's an encouragement to producers here in the States.
1: From rising input costs to shipping delays, Peterson says U.S. dairy producers will continue to rise to the challenge.
5: Part of why the U.S. producers are so efficient and the most sustainably producing dairy produced in the world is we have every time we get tested and we get strained and we get stressed, we figure out new and efficient ways to do what we need to do take care of our animals and to make a high quality product. And you know, tw- the 20s are going to be no different.
1: Well, we'll talk more about that demand, not just for Terry, but also other ag commodities and what it means for prices next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven 40, the only predictable form of nitrogen. Pivot Bio Proven 40, predictable, productive, Weatherproof. Turn to a better nitrogen. Turn to Pivot Bio proven 40.
1: Welcome back to US Farm Report this weekend from the Milk Business Conference. All right, Dan, as we head into 2022, what is your outlook when it comes to milk prices?
2: We are relatively bullish of milk. Uh, we've been bullish going back to the middle of last year. The butterfat market has really exploded to the upside. Demand is exceptionally strong. We like the export profile as it sits. Our Chinese friends continue to be buyers. The cheese market's still not coming along like we'd like to see, but I'm already forecasting that the all-milk price will be above $20 for the first time looking back to 2014, and that we could see Class 3 prices make it up to maybe $21 to $23 for some kind of high next year. So there's reasons to be bullish of milk. What I don't know is from the producers here, you know, the theme has always been too much milk for years and years. When we get to those high prices, what are you going to do? Are you going to expand or what's going to happen then? That's the unknown in my outlook.
1: Right, and when you talk about demand, demand has been solid. We've been talking about that, demand here, demand internationally. It has been solid. But do you feel like, Tanner, heading into 2022, is demand a risk at this point when we're coming off of such high levels?
6: Well, I think there's uh, one question mark, especially on China. Um, They've slowed their purchases just a little bit and uh, you know there's some concern that uh, with logistical issues uh you know uh, consistently uh, being a problem probably through much of next year there we might see some problems there however look at what's going on inside china you've got uh, historically high uh, milk prices at the same time you've got new zealand right there that's having some weather problems um, we just had in uh, the latest report uh, their october production was down over three uh, percent this does not bode well for china so we think uh, that demand uh, base in China is going to remain strong and who's going to benefit it's going to be the United States we just need it. we have some issues logistically uh, we got to work out if we're going to take advantage uh, of that market over in China
1: yeah and it's not just dairy I mean when you look at the grains too China 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 right that's what we're talking about so what is your outlook for demand when it comes to the grains to 2020 in 2022 Mike
7: well they've obviously been softer in their purchases right? on the grain front than what we had, previously expected them to be. So as we go into 22, it'll be an interesting thing to observe, I think, first what we see coming out of South America. How does their crop perform? And I think that could help determine the degree to which China steps into our marketplace. They've already kind of set South America aside as a preferred partner, if you will, and if they have plenty of crop, I don't see them coming into the U.S. market the way we saw them last year when there was some concern over delayed harvest, which meant delayed planting of corn, and then you know, tee that up with a drought there that limited production in Brazil. You know, those things I don't uh, think we can determine just yet, but China has definitely been softer in their purchases of grains.
1: Dan, at the same time, talk to producers in this room, talk to producers all across the country, input prices are painful. You think about fertilizer prices, it's not just the price, but also availability of some of this, empty warehouses possibly. I mean, Dan, do you think that we can see this input situation resolve itself before spring and prices come down? Is that realistic to expect that?
2: No, no, I, I, you know, we're more concerned about availability of product. We do have a couple plants that'll come back online, but the fertilizer shortage is real. Uh, it's going to be staying with us till spring. It will take at least a year before we can resolve the inventory problems that we have. So if we don't start picking up some of the movement uh, up the Mississippi on barges and some other product, uh, there will be areas of the country that actually go without or go without le- or use less than we did last year. So time, I, it's going to take more time than the period we have heading up to spring planning.
1: Tanner, I know CoBank came out with a report on Wednesday saying, listen, we don't think that this fertilizer situation is going to ease itself before spring. Uh, You know, what conversations are you having at this time and and what can producers do?
6: Well, uh, first of all, check out the report on CoBank.com by uh, my colleague, Ken Zuckerberg, and he's our grain and farm supply uh, economist. Uh, Ken is really concerned about this spring and it goes back to what Dan already mentioned. I mean, it it comes down to availability. Forget about price. you have the product there? Is it in the warehouse? And a lot of our uh, customers uh, that are uh, selling uh, farm uh, products or crop protectants or fertilizer, they just don't have the product in the warehouse right now. And that's not typical for this time of year. Uh, they are all they already have the warehouse uh, full of product typically, uh, ready to go for next spring. And that's concerning. So I think going forward, uh, you'd have to think about from the producer standpoint what kind of crop mix uh, will work, given your uh, fertilizer uh, availability. Uh, it may not be uh, corn, for instance. Uh, if you want to switch from corn or to a small grain silage, like triticale, uh, that might be an option. Uh, but it's one of those things that, uh, if you don't have the product now, it could be concerning in the spring.
1: Mike, we talk about managing risk when it comes to commodity prices, but how do you manage risk with, with input prices if you go and you can't, they can't even guarantee you that the supply is there, or the price that you'll have to pay come time to actually need it. How do you manage that risk?
7: There's no financial hedge for physical availability. Reality is if you want to make sure you get it, you're you're going to have to find a supplier. There's just no way around that. And there's a lot of people that have been getting creative on that front. Some new products are coming out to maybe buffer some of those needs. But reality is that if you're gonna try to make sure you have it, you're gonna have to go find it.
1: All right. Thank you all for being here. We appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, bringing four siblings back to the family farm usually requires strategy and growth. But for one Missouri dairy, it wasn't growing in size that helped bring the next generation back. Instead, it's a custom recipe that consists of determination and a lot of change. The Hemi brothers, no cheese.
3: Those are future cheesemakers.
1: After all, cheese has become their bread and butter.
3: Our uh, family started this operation back in 1996. My mom and dad started milking cows. Um, and as a brother started graduating from college, uh, each one came back and we kept um, either adding cows or, or we added this enterprise, uh, uh, the Creamery.
1: The only dairy left in their county, cheese, is what's helped the four Hemi brothers, along with their father, remain dairymen.
3: So in 2011, we started thinking, how are we gonna um, be more sustainable in the future? And we didn't know if that was gonna be milking more cows or making an artisan product like cheese and adding a, a niche market to our business. And so we started doing research on how to make cheese.
1: Research that wasn't just done on the web or by reading a book, Nathan actually traveled to Wisconsin and immersed himself in the magic of cheese making.
3: When we decided to pull the trigger in 2015 to start making cheese, I took a short course up the University of Wisconsin and then we also, our biggest resource was hiring our cheese consultant, uh, Neville McNaughton was his name.
1: A 5-year process once the Hemi Brothers decided to dive into the cheese making business, they started with cheddar cheese.
3: We decided to start making cheddar because we can take this fluid milk, condense it down into about 10% of the weight that it was so the logistics work out really well for us. It didn't just work out well,
1: it exploded the demand for their products that they produced as Hemi Brothers' cheese is now in high demand across the state.
3: We would give credit to the high demand of our cheese due to its quality. Um, It also has a good story behind it, but the the story only sells the cheese the first time. The quality sells it the second, third, and fourth time.
1: And it's that quality that's become the key ingredient of Hemi Brothers' cheeses.
3: The magic of the cheese is the quality. And you can't have quality cheese without quality milk. And maybe that's kind of a, a simple explanation of why our cheese tastes so good, but it's the truth.
1: The quality comes through in the taste.
3: It's got a little bit of a fruity flavor to it, nutty, and it's a nice, sharp cheddar. And he
1: says the secret to that taste is all in how they
3: raise their cows. And that all goes back towards our cows and uh, how we, um, what kind of crops that we're raising to feed these cows and then, and how we're taking care of these cows.
1: Regenerative agriculture is something Nathan says also helped save their family farm.
3: It's important that uh, we do quality work from the time my brother plants the seed in the ground until like that product gets all the way back to me and we package that cheese for someone to buy.
1: Embracing change, the Hemi brothers milk 150 cows today, proof growth doesn't always have to come in adding cows.
3: If we didn't go down the road of making cheese ourselves, we would probably milk in 300, 400 cows. Today.
1: A strategy to sustainably grow, Nathan says it was key in the success of bringing all the Hemi brothers back to the family farm.
3: For years it's been the story of, oh, we'll have two good years and we have one good year. Um, and that's why we started getting into the cheese business. And We want to have a good year every year, and you can't do that with commodity milk prices. And we hate to say that, but that's the truth.
1: From weathering the turbulence of commodity prices as price takers to now working their way to being price makers, the Hemi brothers have found a niche that can help their family legacy live on. The Hemi brothers say they have been the only dairy in their county for the past decade. All right, when we come back, there's a lot of confusion about the accuracy of data from China. John Phipps has his thoughts next.
0: U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Stein Seed. For more than 50 years, Stein has delivered the most advanced corn and soybean genetics available. Through relationships, data, and expertise, Stein has Yield Plus so much more. Discover Yield Plus at SteinSeed.com.
1: From the rebuilding of the hog herd in China to other data that seems to be less transparent in recent years, John Phipps has his take on data accuracy and customer support this week. We've
8: got a great question from Mike Schrammel in Stillwater, Oklahoma. How accurate is the China data referenced in their savings rate? Is it uh, it fair representation to compare other countries' spending behaviors with any communist country? Well, I spoke about excess consumer savings, which is different from national savings, which includes public savings, where a governmental body spends less than it takes in, which is a pretty rare thing in the U.S., and also uh, household savings. For all countries, household savings require some idea of national income, public savings, and consumer expenditures to back-calculate total consumer savings. Now this is a simplification of a much more complicated process, but the important thing is the same methods are used everywhere around the world. There are several international organizations that study economic data from all countries and rate their reliability. Now this chart came from data from world economics and shows some countries I've just picked out to get some idea of the relative reliability of data. On a scale of zero to a hundred, using multiple economic measurements, the most accurate numbers in the world come from New Zealand and the least from Haiti. The U.S. is about 11th, but it's bunched up at the top closely with several EU countries like Switzerland and Germany, uh, well above 95. China's score is 81.5, one of the highest outside developed economies. The interesting aspect to me are those countries below China. Like Mexico and Brazil is also significantly better than Russia. Evaluations by the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, and the Federal Reserve, not to mention our own CIA, are roughly similar. China is not in our league for transparency, but it has been improving over the last few decades. The stronger measure of data reliability for me is if businesses, especially financial giants like Goldman Sachs, find them credible enough to guide their investment decisions. Those firms have huge expert research departments. That answer would seem to be a resounding yes. Are Chinese numbers perfect? Of course not. Are they usable? Definitely. The type of national government has no effect on these third-party ratings. They can influence whether non-economists believe them. But in an industry like ag that loudly scoffs at our own national crop numbers, how exact would Chinese savings rates have to be for us to consider them credible?
1: Thanks, John. Well, up next, a goodbye to a familiar face here on U.S. Farm Report. That's next.
0: Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on Earth.
1: Well, as we mentioned, we're saying goodbye to meteorologist Mike Hoffman this week. He's always had the ability to make his weather forecast a conversation. And after being on U.S. Farm Report for more than 15 years, even though he grew up in Delphi, Indiana, and some in his family who actually farmed, he got to be a farmer for a day in
9: 1999. Uh, you want to hold the tail? Just remember, if they kick, you're
5: next. All right, the worst is over. Then it was on to the part I really dreamed of. Driving a tractor. I was in heaven. Just fill up all those troughs? Yeah, just like I did this morning. Okay. They'll get out of the way, I assume. Oh, what a nice, relaxing way to end a grueling 10-hour day on the farm.
1: Definitely bittersweet. Congratulations, Mike Hoffman, on your retirement. But we're sure going to miss you around here on U.S. Farm Report. Wishing you all the best. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to join us next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone.
0: U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.